Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Kale and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast. I am your host, Josh Carter, and with me, as always, is Cynthia Kale. Cynthia, welcome back. Hey, thanks. We missed you last week, by the way. Yeah, I feel like we're playing leapfrog. You miss a week, I miss a week, you know, it's, it's all good. I think it's part of the holidays too, right? Like I we're just so. kind of getting into the holidays where it's like, I can't make it this week, you can't make but it's all good. I'm glad we're back. And this week, for those, well, let's back up a second. For those that are have never heard this uh, podcast before, welcome. We're really excited you're here. Every week we get to talk to amazing entrepreneurs that are working on these great platforms and uh, they just happen to have one extra thing on their resume and that's service to our country. And this week I am super excited because one, we have an Air Force vet who is, I'm sure Cynthia, you're very excited about. I am. I get to bug you a bit. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> and not about being chair force either. The, the <laughs> other, I get that a lot. The other is that uh, we just happen to be former Techstars founders at the same program, which I'm really excited. We we're just talking about it a little bit. But Greg Coleman, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm going to tell a quick little story and then we get into your journey. Um, I actually discovered Swarkit by accident. And I was going through the app and I bought a, a subscription because I was like, this is amazing. It, it's not like anything that's out there. And then bonus, I found out that one, you were a Na an Air Force veteran and two, that you'd gone through the same Techstar Chicago program that I had gone to with the same managing director. So that's awesome. Super small world. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, we always start our shows out to talk a little bit about the impetus behind going into the service. So I want to understand a little bit more about why the Air Force? What, what prompted you to want to get into the Air Force? Well, you know, there are actually a, a few things at play. Um, you know, there, there's also the, you know, listen, I'm, the, I'm a child of the, uh, of the 70s and 80s, right? So I grew up in, um, you know, coming of age, like in the days of like Top Gun and things like that. Right. Um, but <laughs> same, by the way, bigger, <laughs> exactly. Right. I'm actually kind of like bummed out that, uh, we're that giving Top away Gun our age next year. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But, um, uh, but the other thing that happened too, is that I kind of come from a family of, of service coincidentally. So my, uh, my father, uh, is a Naval Academy grad, uh, you know, back like class of like 72. And then he spent time as a, um, he was a Navy helicopter pilot. Um, back right immediately after Vietnam, his uh, his timing was worked out such that he finished up flight school right as Vietnam was drawing down. So to my mother's uh, elation, he did not end up having to go over there, but he was um, uh, coming up right at the end of that, end up retiring out of the reserves uh, a number of years later. Uh, and then my grandfather on my mother's side, so not my father's father, but my mother's father is a retired uh, army colonel and he was a, um, a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, you know, one of the first, uh, one of the first black uh, pilots. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I kind of had these, um, you know, I kind of had these figures in, in my life growing up. Um, and I was, I was just always grew up interested in flying. You know, I, I, you know, maybe I can blame it as watching Han Solo fly the Millennium Falcon or blame it on my parents or blame it on watching Tom Cruise, uh, you know, fly 14s and Top Gun. But, um, but one, I always wanted to fly. I wanted to be an Air Force. I wanted to be a pilot and, but I wasn't really a huge fan of water. So that kind of ruled the ruled out the Navy for me, much <laughs> to my father's chagrin. And, uh, and I decided to, uh, to go after it in the Air Force. Nice. And and when you got in, what, what, I mean, you, did you end up flying? Did you end up getting into the thing that you wanted to do? I did. I did. Yeah. So I ended up going to the Air Force Academy. So just a little bit of um, timing background. I, um, I graduated from high school back in the you know, early nineties, like 91. And right as uh, the first Gulf War was ending. And at that same time, all of the uh, there was a big huge drawdown happening, and so it used to be that you know pilots would kind of come from everywhere, all you know all the different commissioning sources. But by the time I got uh, got ready to come through, like this, you know, if you wanted to have a chance of, at flying, you needed to go to the academy because most of the pilots were coming out of the Air Force Academy. Right. Um, so I, I was fortunate enough to apply to and, and get an appointment to and attend the uh, Air Force Academy. So I went to the Air Force Academy, uh, and then four years after that, went to uh, flight school. 
uh, out of Vance uh, Air Force Base. I was fortunate to get selected for uh, pilot training, and uh, and that started my uh, my aviation career. That's amazing. That's- yeah, that is amazing. It's it's very rare. I, I hear a lot of people that have a goal and they want to get in and it's hard to get into the academy and then it's hard to get selected. So it's really kind of a, a throw of dice. It was, it, it was. And, you know, and it's, um, and it was a particularly interesting in, in my time, right? Because they, the, the game actually changed while we were there. So essentially, so I showed up as a freshman and then probably about midway through our, our first year, they said, well, hey, listen, we know that in all the previous classes going all the way back to like the founding of this institution, um, you know, back in the, uh, uh, you, know, you know, back in the first classes back in the late 50s, um, everyone who wanted to go become a pilot and go to flight school was able to go. But you know what? Look, things have changed. And so out of a class of a thousand, we know that probably about seven to 800 of you are qualified physically to go fly. We're only going to send um, 250 of you. Wow. Oh, wow. So you got some time to figure it out. Fortunately, I was young enough in my career that we had a clue, but like the groups that were juniors and seniors at the time, well, a lot of their academic records were baked. A lot of their performance was baked. Right. And they just kind of said, okay, and we're going to base it on what you've done thus far. And so they didn't really have time to adjust fire. So for us, we at least had some time to kind of take that in and to realize, okay, this is going to be a bit of a, there's going to be a competition aspect here that we didn't anticipate. So, um, uh, so we had the opportunity to kind of prepare for that mentally. And what was your backup, just in case you didn't get through it? Uh, honestly, I wanted to go into acquisitions. Uh, yeah. You know, I at, I always knew that at some point I wanted to uh, get into business. I didn't really have as much of a concept of what entrepreneurship was back in high school, but I right. knew I, the idea of starting a business and founding a business, or kind of rising through through the ranks of a of a corporation. Um, th- you know, those types of activities were always interesting to me. So if I wasn't going to fly, I wanted to get on the business end of the, uh, of the air force, which would, for me would have meant, you know, acquisitions or contracting. Right. Right. And then when you were, fl- what did you end up flying, uh, while you were in? Yeah. So I ended up uh, flying, I started out flying KC-10s. Uh, so it's funny, funny, another funny story is I originally decided, I originally wanted to go on to be a, a fighter pilot, but then about halfway through flight school, I realized, you know what? that's actually not the lifestyle I want. You know, you know, these guys tend to kind of, they go and they either sit at their home station and then they go deployed and they go back to home station. But man, those mobility guys, the heavy guys seem to have a lot of fun. Yeah. There are all these stories about traveling all over the world and seeing mm-hmm. lots of cool things and lots of cool places. I'm like, you know, that's actually more interesting to me. Um, so in my flight school class, I was uh, fortunate enough that I, I was able to, to select my track either. I could either go fighter bomber track uh, tanker transport track, C-130s or helicopters. And, and I actually chose the, uh, the heavy uh, track because I wanted to uh, get into either the airlift or the, um, or in-flight refueling. So I went through that, uh, came out of there, flew KC-10s um, right out of flight school. So I got KC-10s at McGuire Air Force Base out in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was a pilot there for about four and a half years. And then uh, again, you know, the luck kept kind of turning my way and I ended up, um, getting selected to be initial cadre for a new unit that was uh, transitioning airplanes down in Tampa, Florida. Uh, oh, wow. They were transitioning to Gulfstream 5s. Nice. So I was able to leave uh, KC-10s and go fly what we call C-37s and what civilian was known as the Gulfstream, uh, Gulfstream 5 and went to, got a chance to go fly VIPs all over the world. Oh, wow. You know, what's interesting is that normally what happens with pilots in either whatever military branch, they end up becoming pilots in the in the private sector. Was that anything that was ever of interest to you? You know, there were times where I thought about it, um, but maybe it's just the way I'm wired. It was just never it was never front and center in my mind. Um for a couple reasons. One, or you know, in the military you spend all this time in this tenure-based profession where it's all about, hey, listen, how long have you been there? You got to wait your turn. And um, and listen, your pay is dictated by a a pay scale. Um, And here's what it is. And I I was not terribly interested in trading that uh, system for another system that looked a lot like it, even though the pay was higher. Um, I really wanted to get into an environment that was more merit-based where you were only limited by by your performance. Did you have a, an idea of uh, how you wanted to start your business? Like when you transitioned from the Air Force to, you know, being an entrepreneur? 
No, I didn't. In fact, there, so there was a, um, uh, there was kind of a path that I ended up taking. So I was on active duty for nine and a half years. And I, I knew at that point I wanted to get out and to go back to business school, to go get my MBA and shore up, uh, you know, shore up my skills there to kind of prepare myself for my business career. So I left active duty and joined the uh, DC Air National Guard. So I left Tampa and moved here to uh, to the Washington DC area, which is where I live now, okay. and joined the, uh, the Air National Guard. So I was full time in the Air National Guard. While doing that, I went back to school. Once so I went to the Warren School of Business um, to go get my MBA. Um, and originally, my thought was not that I was going to be an entrepreneur after I finished that. My original thought was that I was going to, you know, transition into finance, either going into investment banking, maybe on the way to maybe even private equity or into venture capital. Um, but then what happened it was 2008. So mm-hmm. I was in. Yeah. Uh, so we were literally at the beginning of my second year award and we were on our, our class trip. So we're sitting in our hotel in Moscow watching Lehman collapse. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, all right, maybe I'm not transitioning into a career in finance after I graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what ended up happening is that there was a, a buddy of mine who was a, 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 one of my classmates and, and study, study partners for the first year. Um, we both had thoughts of entrepreneurship at some point, and we ended up taking um, the concept that we had, um, you know, that we had developed while we were there. And we used that as a class project on probably like three or four different classes. Um, thinking that we may or may not do something with it at the end. So, but, but anyway, fast forward. So we get now we're about a year after graduation and we revisit this idea and realize that there may be, there may be something to it. And so that's when we decide to go, well, you know, what, let's go give it a shot because you tell it the market is, is uh, the job market is in complete disarray right now. So if we actually want to go do anything, we got to go make our own opportunity. And so we decided to start the business at that point. So this was 2008 as the housing market's crashing, <laughs> you know, and, and so you're deciding to, you know, work on the app at that point, or did it take a few years? It took a few years, right? So, okay. yeah, so we were in school from 2008 until, uh, I'm sorry, 2007 until 2009. So we graduated in 2009. Um, so while we were there, two, there are two things that happened, right? So, okay, so one, you had the financial collapse of 2008. Another thing that happened while we were in school was the iPhone was released. Um, so there's this new technology that's now all of a sudden um, been made available. And, and going back, the original thesis around the company, which is, um, so Swarkit is what we're known as, but the actual company is called Nexercise Inc. And okay. so Nexercise was our first product. And essentially what we were trying to do was solve our own problem. Um, you know, we were both going to school full time. We were working full time. Uh, we were married to, to, to busy, uh, busy spouses. We had small children at home and we were kind of just getting what I call overcome by life to the point that it was becoming more and more difficult to have the combination of time, interest and energy to go work out and to stay, you know, stay physically active. And so we started thinking about ways we can use technology to to solve that problem. And originally we were thinking about this in in very much a web based manner, Um, you know, again, 2007, eight into nine. Um, and that's kind of where we left it coming out of school. But then probably about a year after graduation. So now we're talking like late to, you know, early 2010, right? You know, very late 2009, early 2010. Um, we're starting to better understand the capabilities of these mobile devices. I remember we're, we're playing with the, the first Motorola Droid, uh, again, just to kind of go back and date ourselves a little bit <laughs> yeah. and, and, and observing the accelerometer. I think that was the first one after the flip movement. phone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> And, and we're looking at that and then we're seeing what's happening with like these daily deal sites like Living Social and Groupon. And then we're also looking at what Zynga's doing with these social games and how these points, levels and badges are really changing behavior. And we think, huh, can we use a combination of these things to actually change physical behavior and to uh, encourage people to become more physically active using this device? Yeah, like gamification. That's exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we um so we so our first product was was called an exercise, uh, and then we then turned it into Next Track later. But essentially, it was a gamified fitness tracker where we would use the accelerometer on the phone to track your movement, and then once you either once we validated that movement or you were to maybe self submit something, we would give you points and badges and medals depending upon what type of activity you did or any other types of behaviors we were trying to encourage, and then we would also give you. Um, you know, whether or not it's like a daily deal 
or some currency that you could use to redeem for some kind of discount or coupon or something like that. And so that was the genesis of Nexercise Inc. And that was really the first app we put back into the uh, back in the app store back in May, March of 2011. And at the time, there wasn't anything like that, right? I mean, I, I'm kind of I don't I wasn't really into the exercise app market, but how, what what other companies at the time would you have considered your competition? Yeah, so there were a lot. There were a few out there that were trying to approach this from from different dimensions, right? So I remember there was one that was Jim Packed that ended up becoming becoming Packed. Then there were another one out there was Photocracy. Um, I mean, there were quite a few over the years that were trying to right. approach this problem uh, from different angles. And, uh, you know, I don't know anyone has really kind of, I mean, to this day, I mean, there's no one that has really cracked a nut on completely getting somebody to change their behavior and to be become physically active at a large scale. So it, it's still a problem that I, that I think is still in need of a solution. But um, uh, but that's a lot of what you saw, but it was nowhere near as crowded of a marketplace as it is now. Yeah, definitely. And I, what I, you know, as I mentioned at the start of the of the program, I, I happened to to find this app. And what I I found interesting about the platform itself is that it's not you're, you're it's not forcing a particular routine down your throat. It's really I'm trying to understand what is it your individual goal is, and let's pair that with what we offer as a service. That wasn't really the original. As, as you're describing the original sort of model that you guys came up with, how did you get from that, the original model to what you're doing today? Yeah. So it's funny, funny story. So what I just described, the original app is, um, is the business that we went through tech starts with, right? right? I mean, it's still the same business now, but that was the product and that was the story that we had all the way through tech stars back in uh, 2013. So we came out of tech stars um, we raised, uh, we raised a seed round, a small seed round, uh, you know, at the end on the back, coming out of back end, we probably closed within about 45 days of program completion back at the end of uh, 2013. Wow. Um, the thing that we had gotten pretty good at, we had gotten pretty good at monetizing uh, mobile, which a lot of people had not quite figured out how to do yet. So, so we were, we were building, um, a, a pretty good revenue business, uh, based on our ability to, to, you know, drive behavior. We, we were having some success in driving behavior change. Um, but then what we noticed is that uh, consumers were starting to ask for, hey, listen, I know that I want to work, but I don't know what it is I want to do. I'm not sure where to start. I'm not quite sure what's right for me. And so we're like, hmm, okay, this is a possible problem that, that really, you know, stands to, to really need to be addressed, right? And so we were having a conversation with one of our investors um, and the idea of maybe having a number of apps, right? Maybe having like a portfolio of apps that are addressing different aspects of the market uh, came up. And the first thought when the first idea was, okay, well, let's, for one, let's get content, right? So then we said, okay, well, we can either maybe build it ourselves, but you know what? Maybe there's a small indie developer out there who has something cool that would be interesting and maybe, uh, maybe joining our team, um, you know, that would maybe want to maybe want to sell their company to us. Um, and it just so happened that we knew of this guy, uh, this guy named, uh, you know, Ryan Hanna, who's, um, uh, who had developed this very, uh, you know, early version of this app called Swerkit. And it was very, it, it, it didn't look much like what you see now. I mean, like it just had a bunch of like some, some still images for the exercises and it was just very crude, but we could see that this thing was a diamond in the rough and that conceptually it was, it was, it was awesome. Um, so we had been in comms with, um, with Ryan and we said, uh, well, Hey, listen, man, would you, um, would you ever think about selling your company to us and joining our team full time? And he says, well, I don't know, make me an offer. So we made him an offer and, uh, you know, and then the rest is history. So, so he ended up joining our team. Um, so we took, we pulled the app off the market, deconstructed it completely, reconstructed it into something that will be recognizable today and put it back in the market and just kind of let it just kind of run and see what's happening while we were still grinding away on, um, on the other, on the other product. Uh, yeah, Greg, over time, tell me- Tell me a bit about how that tech team got together, because you have this this developer who's obviously very talented and he has his own, you know, he had his own company and he moved over to you, you know, to take something that's a concept level and then basically go and rework the concept and and develop. And, you know, did you have other engineers that you brought onto the team? Um, What did that look like the first days of your early tech team? 
So we kept them separated in the beginning. So what we had on the um, uh, on our next track team or our next exercise team, we had iOS developers and we had Android developers, right? Mm-hmm. And so they were kind of running like in their silos, but trying to work together to kind of like, you know, make sure that we have feature parity from one platform to the next. Um, and what Ryan had done is he was he was a single dude. So he was by himself and he just built it out using a, um, a framework called Ionic, which is a right once platform that you can then customize to make, you know, to, so that it feels native in whatever, on whatever device you're on. So what we did is we just kind of let him rebuild it. But what, what we did is we had Ben kind of help him out from a design standpoint and from mm-hmm. a style standpoint and from a user, user experience standpoint um, to kind of guide him on how to, uh, how to develop it. And then we use some of our front end people just to kind of help with the style of it and to help with the look and feel and the colors, but when it came to actually writing code, we just kind of let Ryan do his thing. Um, so did you did you have a point in time where you had kind of a working prototype where you tried it out on end users, or how did it become what it is today? We did, yeah. So we, um, you know, we were just using like different services, and we would just go out and um, we uh, had a, a service that we were using. We were just doing testing, and we would just go out and just test and just kind of see, hey, listen, what is your reaction to this? And we would just observe. We just hand it to them and observe and to see whether or not they can intuitively find their way around and intuitively figure out how to use it. Right. You know, cause like that's always the trick, right? It's like, how do you get the functionality in there, but make it easy enough for them to be able to just pick up and use on their own without instruction. So yeah, right. we did that. Along the way, you guys managed to find yourselves on Shark Tank, which is, um, you know, arguably one of the best shows to get your product out. I've, I've known a number of veteran founders that have gone through that program, what led up to your appearance to going on Shark Tank and, and talk a little bit about the experience? Yeah, it was funny. I had to be convinced to do it. Um, so um, I wait, wait, wait. who it was. You, you had to be like convinced from- to do a program that would put you in front of millions of people? <laughs> Well, but, 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 but we had seen when that had gone terribly wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah. Past, sure. You know? <laughs> sure. You get the good and, with the um, bad. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And so what ended up happening is that somebody from the show ended up reaching out to, uh, reaching out to us and yeah. saying, Hey, listen, would you all be interested in, in, in applying and in pitching for the, uh, for the show? And quite frankly, it, it took Ben convincing me to, uh, to kind of say yes on it. He was like, Hey, listen, I think we can do this. And I'm like, Oh dude, I don't know, man. I think, you know, like they had, they make people look crazy and they can just take us out of context and just make us look like a, look like a clown act, you know, if we're not careful. <laughs> he's like, and he's like, no, dude, let's, let's try it. And so I said, all right, dude, okay, if we do it, we are going to go on there and we are going to make sure that we go crush it and nail it. And we will not give the producers any fodder to, uh, to, to make us look silly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and so we went through and, and we went through and prepared, but in our preparation, I mean, we like were crazy in our preparation. Um, and we went back and looked at basically every show that had run to date, wrote down every single question. And we basically built a question database of all the questions we've seen sharks ask our sharks ask. And then we, um, and then we wrote down our answers to them, figured out who would take the answers. And then we just practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And so what you see on the actual taping um, is a result of all that, you know, all that work in the background. What I found intriguing was it was a clinic for founders who are really curious about how to pitch to investors. And the reason I say that is because most founders will spend a lot of time focusing on what their business is, why the problem needs to be solved and how they're going to penetrate the market. You guys focused on data. And in most cases, investors are supremely focused on the numbers. How well do you know how much it costs to get your customer? How well do you know how long they're going to stick around? How long do you know the lifetime value? How long? How well do you know the entire market from a from a data and numbers perspective? You guys had all your numbers down pat, and I think that's why you guys got an offer from Mark Cuban. Yeah, well, we had seen uh, we had seen so many versions of Shark Tank gone wrong, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know where people didn't know those numbers. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, like, but that's not going to be us. But here's the thing. Here's my question for you. Did you learn that from Troy Hennikoff at, at uh, TechStars, who makes a point on making sure founders know financial modeling? 
Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, and I think the other thing that happens too is that we're both Wharton guys, right? So yeah. the financial modeling piece is kind of like, you know, that's kind of baked in. Yeah. No, I think, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm going to ask you about lessons learned, but I think that's the one underlooked thing. And, I, you know, I'm, I've run many accelerator programs before. You and I have, uh, you know, been part of Patriot Bootcamp before. And, and I tell founders every single time, look, if you're going to pitch to investors, you need to know your numbers. You need to build a financial model because ultimately that's the heartbeat of your business because you could change assumptions and see what it does to your bottom line uh, instantly, not just assume what it does. You could see what it does. That's exactly right. I mean, and it also helps you make great business decisions, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, so to the extent, I mean, and just very simple, you know, that's why looking at the numbers and looking at what was happening with Swarget, that's what caused us to essentially pivot the business away from our first app yeah. and the focus exclusively on Swarget and build a plan to retire the other app when at the time of the pivot, 90% of the company revenue was coming from that other product. Wow. Mm-hmm. But we had to model out, well, what does this need to look like in order for us to be able to, okay, go from this product to this product and not tank the revenue in the process? Yeah. I like how you use metrics and focused on that because I think that a lot of people, a lot of fa- new founders don't understand the power of analytics, you know, that drives your product. And then that user experience, because that's what I do for a living is user experience and user interface design. And a lot of times people want a pretty face. They want that pretty interface, but they really don't know what is it that users want because what they want from day to day is going to be different, you know, and you have to be able to be flexible for sure. And it sounds like you you were very successful in doing that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, to your point, the data is key, right? Yeah. Um, but the other thing that can't be lost is the is the user experience, right? So it, it's, it's not a it's not an either or it's a yes and really. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to have both if you're going to be successful. And but more specifically, you have to understand the data behind the user experience and realize that one can inform the other, right? So the data can form can inform how you even design the the product to start with, right? Because you're trying to design for certain behaviors. You're trying to design for certain uh, interactions and your ability to track, say, a conversion funnel, like an onboarding funnel when they first open the app, that is going to directly impact how you even design the user experience uh, from, from the moment they open up the product. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, we've been talking to Greg Coleman of Swarkit here on the Veteran Founder Podcast. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back because I'm really interested to hear the outcome of, of Shark Tank. We'll be right back. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. And we're back. Welcome back to the Veteran Founder Podcast. We've been talking to Greg Coleman. Uh, he's the CEO, one of the co-founders of uh, Swarkit. We're really excited to, to be chatting with him. We, before we broke, we were talking a little bit about his experience at Shark Tank. And what's interesting is you guys got an offer on the show, but you ended up not taking it. Talk a little bit about that process. Yeah, well, the thing that you uh, that a lot of people may not know, I mean, so there are probably like two misnomers or two things that people just don't understand about the show is that what you see on television is is the part that's edited down for television, right? Uh, you know, when you're there in real life, you are prob- it is basically just a one-hour continuous shoot. And then what they wow. do is they go back in. What you see on television is that one-hour-ish edited down to seven minutes of, of good TV, right? Um, so that's kind of one thing. The second thing that people have to realize is that on Shark Tank, what you see on the show is nothing more than the initial handshake. Yeah. Right? Of, of a business deal. And so there's an entire, after that handshake, that's when you get the, all the lawyers involved. You start passing documents, you start passing, uh, inf- you know, all, all kinds of stuff back and forth. Uh, you know, for us, what ended up happening is that during that process, there were just some like little nuances, some little terms in the deal that just weren't a mutual fit between us and, uh, you know, and Mark's team. And, uh, and, and because it wasn't a fit, we just ended up not doing the deal. Uh, you know, there's no harm, no foul, no hard feelings. It just 
and it just wasn't a fit. Fortunately for us, we didn't need the money at the time. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's not like we were desperate or in any kind of like dire straits coming out of the back end of it. Um, it just wasn't a fit, you know, and sometimes you just got to know when to move on. Yeah. Can I, can I just ask a question about that a little bit? Like, how did you know and how did you get to the realization that it wasn't a good fit? Uh, you know, it's just more of a, um, I'll say just probably just more of like a, a, you have a sense of like the things that you're willing to move on and the things that are, that are kind of like your, um, your go, no go points. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, even going on the show to start with, we had, we had a bracket of acceptable deals we would take. And when he came in within, within those parameters, he's like, okay, we have the deal. And, and whether or not it would have been Mark or anybody else, we, we, we knew that, listen, if anybody gives us these terms, then we will take that deal. And so, and then just on the back end, right. You know, if you have certain things that you're kind of like not able to, or not willing to budge on, then, you know, it, it just is what it is, right. It's nothing personal. It's just a matter mm -hmm. of, it's just not a fit. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say this, you know, 1.5 for 10% is not a bad deal after you've gone through Techstars and given 6% for 20 grand. Right. So exactly, <laughs> it's yeah. not a bad deal. But the other thing is, you know, and I don't, you, we don't need to talk about what the specific terms were that you didn't like, but what, what was it that you learned from that process that you wish would have gone differently? Uh, no deal is done until it's done. Yeah, uh, I think it's probably the biggest takeaway. And and when I say done, I mean like you know signatures done, money in the bank, right? Most right. Of, you know, you know, nothing is done until it's done. I yeah. think it's probably the biggest takeaway. Troy calls them happy ears. <laughs> say it again. I said I've heard them call happy ears. Right? Troy famously calls them. You know, don't get happy ears until the money is in the bank. <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah, yeah. And, and and you see a lot of like young entrepreneurs they get so excited and they act and talk and even almost brag sometimes as if something is done yeah when yeah. it's not yeah, yeah. I, the other thing I'm hearing is a really good sense of self and a good sense of boundaries because, you know, I've seen a lot of new founders get derailed on their vision because you have a venture capitalist or you have a uh, an investor and, and their vision kind of ends up usurping the entire project. Um, and then what ends up happening is you're not owning your project anymore. And so there's kind of a, a double edged sword there. Well, it's interesting because you can you can align yourself with a really good investor who can do a lot of good for your company, but you can also align yourself with a with an investor who is just an absolute nightmare, and you can't get them off your cap table. And mm -hmm. and to so to your point, Greg, making sure that you're doing that in an effective way is important. And it doesn't matter if they've got a really notable name; if they're not a fit, they're not a fit. Yep. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and again, and I, I want to make sure it's clear, it was, not, it was nothing personal. It was literally sure. just deal terms, right? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, but kind of get, kind of getting back to another point, too, is that I can kind of bring that whole sense of self and sense of kind of knowing what you will and want do. I can I can very easily map that back to my time in the military, mm -hmm. right? Um, especially flying missions, right? It's like, listen, we have, you know, you're flying an airplane. You got certain parameters you're in, right? You got entry mm -hmm. and exit parameters for anything that you're doing, right? And listen, if you're not in that parameter, then you do not continue. Because if you do, then history has shown you that things are probably not going to go well. You know, and there's this concept of like a bingo fuel, right? Hey, listen, if, if, when I hit bingo fuel, no matter what I'm doing, I need to stop and go home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, regardless of how inconvenient it is, right? And so there's that, you know, so, so that kind of just discipline around kind of knowing your, again, knowing yourself and knowing, listen, these are my, these are my safeguards. These are my guardrails Yeah. and staying, you know, and then knowing how to operate in them, uh, I think translates outside of, uh, outside of what we've learned in the military. Well, you bring up such a good point. I think a lot of founders, uh, especially non-veteran founders don't know how to connect the dots between what they've done as an operator, uh, and what they've done as an operator, as an entrepreneur operator. And that's a great, I love the way you, you connect the dots for you, uh, for your business. Now, l let me ask you a question here. When you're talking about going to investors and, and talking about who you're going to bring in, what are some of the lessons that you've learned of the terms that came in? And here's why I'm asking. When I was an entrepreneur and we were pitching to angel investors, we would get really wonky terms in the term sheets. And it wasn't that they were bad for our company. They were just not very savvy investors, right? So we would get things like pro rata rights that never expire, first rider refusal rights that never expire in term sheets from angels. When you see term sheets from investors and you see these wonky terms, how would you advise entrepreneurs to deal with those? Uh, my point of view is have a good lawyer. 
Um, because, <laughs> yeah, that's answer. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly, right. Because like, like for me, it's one of those things where um, I know what I'm good at. I know my domain. Yeah, and I know enough about the law to about the law to get myself in trouble. Yep. And so, um, one place I have never skimped is on legal advice because um, I find that you know, you know, inexpensive or free legal advice tends to be the most expensive long term, right? Yeah. And the way I think about it is I'll read it and I'll see, you know, Hey, listen, this doesn't seem right to me. Um, but you know what? Let me get a quick sanity check on it. Yep. And then I can throw it to the lawyers and say, all right, okay, tell me what you think of this document. These things here are concerning me. Am I off base or am I thinking about this the right way? In which case they'll either come back and say, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is, this, these are non-standard terms. Um, you know, or, uh, or they'll say, Hey, you know what? Yeah, we are starting to see more and more of this. This is the, li- th- these are the, uh, the risks that come with that, when you, with those terms and with that deal. Um, this is, these are the things you should be thinking about whether or not you want to accept them. Right. Yeah. The other thing that that does too, is now all of a sudden you have some third party that you can in theory, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes now, blame, uh, you know, for, uh, for the issues with the paperwork. So you can go back to those investors and you can say, you know what? You know, I, I have my lawyer look at these and, you know, all the feedback I'm getting is that these terms here are kind of like way out of what's standard, especially for a deal like the one we're doing right now. Um, is this something that you're open to, to moving on? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. What do you think you took aside from making that really good parallel distinction between your service and, and entrepreneurship? What do you think you took away from military service that has helped you in your entrepreneurial career? I would say there are two things uh, and, and, and not to cop out by not choosing one, but I think there are two that I would love for your listeners, you know, any veterans out there to be thinking about. Okay. One is the gauntlet that we have been through as veterans, um, whether or not that's in basic training or in survival training or in flight school or whatever, you know, ranger school, whatever, whatever it is that you've gone through in your experience, um, you've gotten through those things. And so you can get through this entrepreneurial journey and what it, you know, and, and what's going to be thrown at you. The only difference is that there's no quote unquote end date. So just kind of be prepared for the long haul. Yeah. Uh, and I even relate that directly to tech stars. So when I think about tech stars, I'm sitting there and tech stars kind of like watching, you know, everybody around me kind of freak out and just be like frazzled <laughs> and stressed out. And, and, um, you know, they're not used to being spoken to the way like, you know, uh, Troy and Sam and Steve and those guys would kind of like just very blunt candid. Okay. This, okay. This sucks. Fix it. Type of con- type right. of conversation. For me, it was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I know how this works. This has been my entire career up until now. I was getting this kind of type of feedback. So I had a much, um, I just kind of sat back and enjoyed the ride, so to speak, as opposed to kind of feeling personally attacked or personal about it. So I think that perspective is thing one. Um, thing two would be the ability to adapt to changes in the operating environment, right? So when you're out running a mission, nothing ever goes the way you think is going to go. You have a set of assumptions right. that you have baked into your mission planning. That when you know, and, and then once you come in direct contact with whatever it is that you're doing for your mission, things are going to change. You need to be able to adapt. So and so in order to adapt, you have to have one a good. Um, command and understanding of what it is you're trying to accomplish and the tools available to you so that you can just navigate the challenges that come in front of you. I see entrepreneurship the same way. You're always going to get punched in the face. It's just how do you respond to those punches and can you correct course, you know, or adjust fire or whatever to make sure that you can get around uh, whatever obstacles standing in front of you right now. Yeah. That's really resiliency in action. You know, it really you is. learn that from all the push-ups, all the training, um, all the sleepless nights, and it just prepares you. You know, I kind of liken that. It, entrepreneurship is a lot like parenting. You too. You're you're owning this product. You it's it's kind of your baby day and night. You know, you have to give your time, your energy, your love to it, but you also have to know when to be flexible, when to adapt, and when to ask for advice. And I, I definitely see like where you came into tech where you you didn't have a tech background and that's a really interesting thing because I'm seeing this like app where you had the concept you're the business person and you had a need that you wanted to fulfill for yourself and I really think those are kind of like the best products because you're looking at what's viable what what would you use 
yourself as a consumer and knowing how to hire the, the, the right people for your team, how to tackle the issues that you might not have that intrinsic skill baked in, but you're entrusting your tech team or your designers, you know, people to roll out this, uh, this application, which is pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, and, and again, and those are types of um, skills that you take from the military, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's all about the resilience and the adaptation. And just being able to think on your feet is really what it comes down to. Greg, one of the things that new entrepreneurs just really struggle with when they're trying to build their business is customer acquisition, right? We all talk about who's the who's our ideal customer and where do we find them? As a As an app that has sort of a really broad audience, how have you guys been able to figure out how to fill that engine where you're getting new users, they're saying for a certain amount of time, you've lessened your churn, but you're able to fill this perpetual machine of getting new users. How have you guys unlocked that uh, for your business? Yeah, I would say the trick is making sure that you have a rock solid product. Sure. Um, you know, you know, For us, 97% of our growth has been organic. That's awesome. Um, and so we have... Um, been able to two things one we get a lot of just internal customer referrals right so people who are enjoying and having good experiences with Swarkit, uh referring other people to it or talking about it or getting getting uh, other people to use it um and number two is uh you know we've been very fortunate in that we've been able to get pretty good earned media um over the years um and then one some of that is there's a grind aspect of just kind of even just doing active outreach to reporters and two is leveraging the opportunities you get. And, and three is just kind of even looking for new opportunities to kind of offer a perspective, offer a point of view um, that may be fresh or maybe, um, uh, or, or maybe, you know, not previously observed or heard sure. by, by others. Yeah. And, and you guys have a great blog. Uh, your website's filled with content. How much has that been, important to your growth i I mean we talk a lot about you know marketing being a key piece and i'm sure cynthia's ears are perking up right now because this is her jam (laughs) exactly but but i mean like how much of like say content marketing blogging social media how much of that has been important to your growth um it's been important to the extent that it it runs our community right so it keeps people engaged and keeps them active um, and through that, one, we get good um, domain authority uh, just with the website. Um, and then two, uh, it really just kind of helps keep those people who are, who are your fans engaged and coming back for more and referring it to, to other people. Um, you know, the website is not a gigantic uh, and our content is not a gigantic lead generation tool, but it's a way to stay relevant and stay top of mind and to even start to garner uh, the earned media and the referrals and things like that. That makes you know, a lot of I, sense. Can I ask you about the community? You talked about, you know, this feedback and the blogging and getting engagement and building community. I think of that kind of as a free tool for feedback too. You know, when people are saying, Hey, I really like this portion of your app, but I've noticed this in my exercise journey or my nutrition journey. Um, could you put like a nutrition or dietary issues on there? Like that's almost like feedback for you guys to say, Hey, there's work at 2.0 or, you know, the next versions of, of the app. Um, how much of that dialoguing happens with the, you know, direct engagement with your fans? Uh, quite, quite, quite a bit. So we, so what we have is we have, there's a, there's like a super special secret uh, group. That's a Facebook group. That's a little bit even smaller closed community uh, that people get invited to uh, through high engagement in the app. And in there, we get a lot of really good feedback nice. on on what's working and what's not, and um, and to that end, we start to do more um, uh, to address that need. The funny thing is that not only does that inform uh, how we think about the actual app design and the and the uh, what we offer directly in the app, but it also informs. Uh, additional engagement with the community in terms of like running and hosting challenges mm-hmm. and having opportunities for the community just to interact with each other and to get more involved. You know, uh, every uh, every episode we ask founders this one question, and I know it's hard as an entrepreneur because we mess so many things up all the time, but what do you think is that one critical thing that you've screwed up so badly that it could have impacted your business? It's that one thing that you said, I'll never 
screw that up again. Hmm. But one thing, well, it's one of those things where it, um, it's type of thing where you try not to let it happen, but it keeps happening again. Bad hires will, yeah. will mess you up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, bad hires will just set you back a long time. And the problem is that you may not realize it's a bad hire until the person is, has has already departed. Oh, uh, yeah. And and you feel like uncovering uh, ways that, oh, good gosh, man. It's also, it's like the gift that keeps on giving, oh, you know, no. or keeps on taking, I should say. Yeah, and, and yeah. it's hard to figure that out, right? Because until they're in the throes of your business, you really don't have a good gauge to figure out if they're going to be a bad hire. It's just, it's such a hard problem to solve. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I like to believe we've gotten better at it over time. Like, sure. I'm really happy with the team we have in place right now. Um, you know, but there have been some fits and starts to, to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And so where do you see this going in the next five to 10 years? Where do you hope Swarkit goes? So there are two things. Um, there are a couple of things that have happened in the last couple of years that have really had us kind of like rethink the um, uh, the business and where the real opportunity is for the business. Um, so it's always been, you know, we've been a great, you know, direct consumer, you know, B2C uh, market player for years now. Um, two things that we've seen in COVID um, or that just got accelerated by COVID. We had always had this idea that, you know what? Uh, we really do think that this will be a great tool for uh, for corporations and for for the enterprise uh, to have as a um, uh, as a wellness uh, tool or benefit or offering for their employees. And when people started working from home, we saw a lot of companies scrambling, trying to figure out, hey, listen, you know, what can I do to keep my employees physically active to to keep them um, to help them stay even happy mentally or to just um, uh, help them realize that we care about them and that we really are concerned with their with their health. And so we've started selling directly into the enterprise and have seen that business really start to take off, um, you know, to the point that a lot of our you know new hires are going to be in, in sales and in account management, uh, you know, selling directly to uh, to the enterprise. And so we're nice. really excited about that business. And we feel like that business might actually end up being a lot even a lot bigger than the consumer business. Um, another one that's been really interesting is uh, two years ago, well, a few years ago, teachers started um, asking us when we went from a being a free with ads ad to a paid only ad. We had a lot of teachers uh, reached out to us and started asking us if we uh, did any deals with schools or if we had any way that we could make it available to schools. And we thought about it. And given the lack of access and the lack of budget for a lot of schools, it didn't quite feel right to um charge schools just so that students could have a way to be more physically active. So we started something called a Swarkid Youth Initiative. And what we did is we went back to the studio and we took a lot of our most popular exercises and filmed them using, using children uh, to make the app more approachable, more relatable to younger kids. You know, you know so instead of like a, 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 uh, like a fourth or fifth grader trying to follow some like buff personal trainer with, um, you know, with perfect form, they're looking at another kid who has the same little kind of like, you know, imbalance challenges or, or mechanical kind of like quirks that they do. And it makes it much more relatable and approachable for them. And so we did that and we packaged that and made that available to schools all over the world for free through the Swark and Youth, Youth Initiative. And so we've had um, schools uh, all over all 50 states, all over the world, like we were almost 14,000 schools now have signed up for the Swarkid Youth Initiative, making Swarkid available for free to nearly 10 million children. Wow. And we're really excited about that. And we could really see Swarkid becoming like an industry standard when it comes to instruction and not just remote, because a lot of these schools were using Swarkid even before COVID hit. Wow. But what we're doing now is for schools that do have budget, we've built out uh, a student engagement portal. So with that engagement portal, now an athletic director or a school administrator or whatever can actually manage um, the workout routines of their students, whether or not they need to assign exercises or workouts to a class or to a sports team yeah. or to whoever. Um, and they could also track the completion of the exercises so that they can proper, properly award PE credit. That's amazing. Whether or not it's for grades or if the state has a requirement for, um, uh, you know, for how much physical activity a child should be getting, this now gives them some tools. That's great. And so the teachers have been loving this. In fact, there was a really interesting, there were two things that really touched my heart 
um, yesterday that I saw. So earlier this week, um, a teacher recorded a YouTube video and sent it back to us. And he was sharing two things. One was there was a student that they had um, who was in a wheelchair. Hmm. And, and, and this child was not able to take part in a lot of like the standard physical activity, especially, especially remotely. And so what they did is they took Sworkin. They were able to make a, a, a workout uh, specifically for this kid. And they sent the workout to the, uh, to the kid. And then the family started responding back to the teachers. Hey, listen, this is amazing. I'm so happy to, uh, you know, it's, it's so great to, you know, it's, it's so great to see my child like taking part in physical activity and, and feeling happy about it. Right. That's great. And then the second one that happened, this is from the same teacher, um, described the fact that for the, anyone who's used the app knows that there are audio prompts. So there are voice cues that tell you, one, it announces the exercise you're going to do, and it also announces your timing. Mm-hmm. Additionally, it also tell, gives you tips on, hey, keep your back straight or make sure that you, that you engage your core, you know, the types of um, instruction that you might get from a trainer. And there was a, uh, a young lady in one of their classes who is legally blind. And she had not been able to take part in their physical activity, but she's at an age now where they're trying to teach her how to be more independent as mm-hmm. she's now getting into adolescence and preparing to kind of go out into the world on her, on her own. And so they were able to give her work on for the first time, she was able to follow along uh, a workout just based just on the audio prompts That's from incredible. the app. And he was just sharing to me just a gratitude that the parents shared with him. And then he was expressing that to, to our team. And so those things were really rewarding to That's me. That's awesome. I love it. This is great. I mean, like I said, I, I found it and I signed up and I'm, I'm excited to the, the, the exercise routines are amazing. And, uh, and, and what it has done for our family, at least is it's, uh, it, my daughter wants to do the, uh, exercises with me, which I think is really important. And, um, and I'm so, I'm so thrilled. Uh, Greg, where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me online at, I'll tell you what, I, I'm on Twitter. I'm not as active as I would like to be. It's, uh, at, uh, Gregory B. Coleman is my Twitter handle. Yeah. Uh, and then the other great, just Gregory Coleman on LinkedIn. That's amazing. Uh, and Swarkit is just available on the iOS and, uh, Android app store, right? Yeah, so, so iPhone, or you know, Apple App Store, uh, Google Play, we are also available on Apple TV, and we are also available directly on the web. You can actually get it through any web browser. You go to app.swarkit.com. Greg, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you more, and um, thank you so much for your service, and thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, well, thank you all for your service, and thanks for having me. This has been fun. Cynthia, have a good week. Yes, yes, you too. Can't wait to find our next candidate and get some more stories. Greg has been awesome getting to know you. Yeah. Thanks guys. Hey, you've been listening to the veteran founder podcast right here on the startup radio network. Tune in every Friday at 1 PM on the West coast. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the startup radio network. Listen, learn, launch 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.